if I took away your ability to feel pain, you wouldn't benefit from that. You'd actually have a much worse life. When we say like, why did God create suffering? In one sense, creatures created suffering through the evolutionary process because it was such an advantage. Hello and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. This is the third episode in our new series on science and religion. We have Bethany Solareda back on the show to discuss her research on evolution and the problem of animal suffering. What scientists tell us is that death and disease were always part of life and were not introduced later when Adam and Eve sinned. Bethany's work gives us a clear example of theology taking that seriously and trying to make sense of it in a Christian worldview. Why would God create a world in which death was necessary for life? What does this say about who God is? Does this challenge core Christian beliefs, or do we just need to understand our beliefs in a different way? These are uncomfortable questions, and Bethany won't let us walk away from them. Our faith need not and should not be afraid of these or any other questions, and it's our task to face them and find our own answers. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks very much for joining us again, Bethany. You've been on there many times before, but you're now on in a new capacity as one of our science and religion series. And we'd like to interview you on uh, your research on evolution and animal suffering. Emily has a few questions to start off with. Yeah, so I just, because this is a science and religion series, I wanted to start by asking, how do you understand the field of science and religion and why did you choose it? Ah, Good question. So I think that the field of of science and religion is, of course, amorphous and greatly debated over whether it is a field or a discipline or nothing at all. I use what I call the, the soup analogy. So the way that you know you have chicken soup is that there's chicken somewhere in the soup. That doesn't identify how much there is. That doesn't define whether you've baked it or boiled it or what you've done with it. It just means somewhere in there. So I think if you're doing theology and science is involved in any way, you're doing science and religion. Mm -hmm. So I, I have a very broad umbrella And that can include things like, you know, then people ask, well, what about parapsychology and all that kind of thing? And I think, you know, if, if, if chicken is this sort of physics and Christianity that we all know, then sort of parapsychology and Hinduism is sort of some, some of the meats we might not eat so much in the Western world, you know, but they're still absolutely valid ways to, to make a soup. I really like that analogy. Um, And so, Moving on more to your research, it kind of falls in under the bracket, perhaps, or you might want to challenge this, of evolutionary theodicy. So I wonder if you could define that for us, um, and why did you decide, decide that this was a problem worth taking on? Right. So theodicy ha- can simply mean that sort of branch of theology that deals with the question of why does a good and powerful God allow suffering? And that's usually how I use it. In theodicy literature, there's often uh, a more technical use, which means a particular defense of the goodness of God. Actually, even using defense is problematic there, but mm-hmm. a, a particular uh, giving the particular reasons for why God allows suffering. So, a defense is sometimes seen as the the sort of broad. Here are plausible reasons where it would be 
logically consistent to believe in a good God and the existence of the kinds of harms we see in the world today. Whereas if the Odyssey is more bold than that and says, these are the actual reasons. Um, I dislike both of those. And I prefer what Chris Southgate says, sort of a, an adventure in the theology of creation. So I'm trying to paint a picture in which God and suffering are, are both there, but I'm not saying that this is a justifying reason only that this is a picture of the world where where these go together. As to why I took it on, um, I was actually just interested in in normal theodicy questions. You know, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does God not strike down bad people when they do bad things? Uh, but way too much had been written on that, and it wouldn't have made any original impact in the academy. So I kind of took the evolutionary thing as a convenience to, to work in the same kinds of questions in a way that not many people were working in it. And what I found was the advantages is it gave me sort of an arm's length distance from the emotional side. It's much easier to think about the death of a dinosaur than, you know, the cruelties that happen in the world today. So it creates a sort of critical distance so that you can think more clearly about it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, emotional yeah. distance, I think. Because yeah. when I when I did my PhD and I was reading all these books on suffering, they all felt like they had to give examples of the worst kind of human suffering. And then you'd just sit there and you'd be weeping. And so you can't you can't read concentration camp stories and then do the kind of thinking that you're meant to do in theodicy. And I think insofar as I got better at doing that over time, I lost something valuably human. So doing animal suffering, not in terms of the kinds of things that we do to animals today in farming, but looking at animal suffering in the pre-human period, just it simplified the questions and it gave me emotional distance. Do you not worry about taking a quite an anthropocentric view of things there by centering human suffering is the most important and the most significant and we can look at animal suffering in a more detached way because maybe it doesn't have as much value. I don't know that I would say it doesn't have as much value. I would mm. just say that I'm not emotionally attached to dinosaurs in the way that I'm attached to the people I know and love. Well, I guess you could <laughs> say it's, it's not attributing objectively more value to humans than to animals, but subjectively, when we see humans suffer, we react more strongly to it don't we so then when you see an animal suffer or when you talk even even more distantly when you talk about an animal suffering it's just doesn't emotionally as affect you as much I suppose I think so I mean especially again if if, if we're talking about the suffering of my cat I'm going to be very emotionally connected if we're talking about the suffering of a dinosaur who went extinct 65 million years ago that, that just does feel different, I think. And so, you know, brain studies have shown that when we have those strong emotional reactions, it actually cuts down our ability to do sort of analytical thinking of the type that's necessary. So trauma studies and that kind of thing will say, you know, the reason you can't talk to somebody about the meaning of their suffering right in the midst of it is that that sort of emotion decapacitates our, our ability to use our frontal cortex in the way that we need for this work. So I actually just found m reading many theodicy books disabling in that way. 
I guess it's a bit like a surgeon having to do surgery on a member of his own family mm -hmm. or her own family rather than doing surgery on a complete stranger. They can actually do it better when they're not so emotionally involved. Well, yeah, they're not yeah. even allowed to do any... No, medical professionals aren't allowed to treat their families for that exact reason. Exactly. So yeah. I guess that's a good analogy to use. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's that's how I ended up in Evolutionary Theodicy. And then ever since, I've just done anything grim and depressing. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, I... I was interested when you, you were giving examples of dinosaurs because, of course, your work doesn't just focus on animal suffering from way back 65 million years ago. You do talk about the suffering of animals today. And that does, it does seem to be something that people care less about. Um, why, why do you think that's something that people care less about? And do you think the fact that we care less about it is a specifically theological problem? Do you think it's a moral problem? Or do you think actually it's not a problem at all? It's just a fact about human nature. That's an interesting question. I think that there are some people who care very deeply about it, mm -hmm. and 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 you know I know I know a great deal of people like that. I think that that anthropomorphism or anthropocentrism you mentioned earlier is obviously a problem that mm -hmm. we often don't think that others can suffer, that others suffering is like our suffering, you know, and we all had that as kids when we didn't realize that making fun of that person made them feel bad in the yeah. same way that being made fun of made us feel bad, you know, we had to learn that. And so I think that there's a learning curve to sort of saying animals suffer in significant ways. And we have a lot of science that, that shows that that's very probable. At the same time, it's probably fair to say they don't suffer in exactly the same ways as us, but I don't think we could conclude from that that their difference means their suffering is morally unproblematic or not important. Mm. Well, I mean, I think you can make the same argument for variability between humans. I don't think we all suffer in the same way yes. because of our past experiences, our psychological makeup, whatever. So um, I don't think it's that helpful to draw a clear distinction between the suffering of animals and the suffering of humans. Also, because when we talk about animals, we're lumping an extremely broad range of creatures in with each other. We could yeah. be talking about flies or gorillas or anything yeah. in between. Yeah, and it's almost, it's almost impossible to avoid a certain anthropocentrism because even when we see an animal suffering, we're projecting our own ideas of, suff of human suffering onto that because we've never been an animal. We don't know what it's like for an animal to suffer. So in a sense, you can't avoid being anthropocentric one way or another, right? Mm -hmm. mm. But, but I guess the interesting question is, is it something we should try and fight against or overcome? Or is it something we should just accept? Yeah. Uh, can we pause on that question? Because I wanted to ask a different question. <laughs> um, we're talking about animal suffering, but... I think so far, I haven't yet seen how the question of animal suffering relates to science. So animal suffering is definitely a theological problem. We can see that. But what makes it a theological problem that's engaged with science? So part, part of the reason is uh, that in, in many of the circles I was involved with in, in church and in life, people were relatively skeptical of whether, say, evolution had happened. And one of the reasons that they had a problem with evolution was that they said, theologically, this would mean that God used death and suffering. These weren't a result of the fall. These weren't a result of sin, um, that this is part of God's plan. And so talking about, because that was one of the theological objections people had to evolution, then it had to do with sort of evolutionary sciences. Um, I mean, that's very interesting because 
normally the, 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 the most common and sort of strongest objection that you normally hear from Christians to evolution is not the theological uh, problem of death, but it's rather just an incompatibility with certain readings of the book of Genesis. Yeah, so uh, sometimes it would start there, but it, it felt like after we talked about, you know, what uses to make of radiocarbon dating and what to do with Genesis, the end point was, but I just can't accept a God who would create through this sort of method. So in other words, even if one sort of comes to the view that you can read Genesis 1 in the way that's not incompatible with evolution, that doesn't put an end to all of the problems that evolution raises for Christians. Not at all, yeah. I think I think it it, it raises new questions, and, and so that's what I tried to do with some of my work, was answer some of those questions so that Christians who are maybe skeptical or unsure about evolution could feel like, ah, there's a good theological base here. That, that provides a landing spot if I, if I change my views on this. Yeah, very interesting. Maybe it would be helpful to say a bit more about precisely the problem evolution raises for animal suffering, maybe with some examples or something. Yeah, so if, you, if, you, if evolution is the way God created, it, it means that the, the competition, the death, the extinction, things like disease, things like parasitism, weren't sort of results of something going wrong with the plan. They're actually the evidence of things going right mm -hmm. with the plan. Uh, and and a number of people have, have had problems with that, starting with Darwin, who said, you know, I cannot believe that a good and beneficent God would designedly create, you know, wasps who feed in the living bodies of caterpillars. They lay their eggs in there and the, the young eat their way out. Or he said that I've heard that analogy a few times. Is that a sort of standard example that people go to mm -hmm. yeah because yeah. darwin uses it in a in a letter to asa gray so he says you know i can't believe that a good god would use it would design that kind of wasp or that or that a cat should play with mice and and so the, those are the two that kind of are often brought up but particularly the wasp because people are less familiar with it so it 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 lays its eggs yeah on on caterpillars and then they hatch and they eat their way uh, through the caterpillar, and they actually target the least vital organs first. So the, the caterpillar lives as long wow. as possible. And it was the inspiration for the movie Alien. You oh, know, with really? the face sucker alien that yes. deposits and then it breaks out. That, ah. that was actually inspired by nature. <laughs> so. I didn't know. So let me see if I can rephrase in my own words what the problem is. Basically, the way life as we see it works on Earth seems to require a huge amount of death and suffering that's not sort of an accidental byproduct. We actually, it seems to be baked in, hardwired into the whole way that biological life works and has worked for millions of years. And that seems, at least intuitively to most Christians, to be not the way a good God would create things to be. Yeah. So that, that's the problem in the nutshell, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that sort of idea of it's not what a Christian intuitively would believe would only be really true since the Reformation. So well, well, Christians wouldn't intuitively believe that humans should go through all of this. For the majority of the time that Christians have been thinking about these questions, most of them had no problem with uh, animal suffering before the fall. So you can read Augustine, you can read um, Aquinas, you can read 
you know, a number of the great luminaries of the Christian faith. And they all sort of said, yeah, humans should have lived forever and not suffered. But of course, animals eat each other. You know, what else, what else would they do? <laughs> so how did they explain that in relation to a good God then? They just didn't have a problem with it. It's just the way the world worked. So in, in a sense, they just didn't see that kind of animal suffering as an evil. No, it was yeah. just part of God's plan. Maybe yeah. they didn't really think that animals actually did suffer. Because, I mean, Descartes famously, I mean, this isn't the right time period, but famously thought that animals were automatons and any indication that they were suffering wasn't actually evidence for the fact that they were yeah. suffering. I think Descartes is coming out of a particular enlightenment mechanistic view of the world that sure. just didn't exist before. So I think that they did see that animals suffered and obviously there there was worry about the treatment of animals as well. But again, they they just simply didn't see animals eating each other. I mean, I do think that's an problem. interesting point because if people like Augustine in the 5th century were capable of dismissing the problem of animal suffering, it shows that at least they were aware that animal suffering and death happened and that suggests that this isn't a problem that's only arisen since the theory of evolution, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. you don't need to be an evolutionist to see that, like, lions and tigers are obviously designed, without implying a designer, to kill and tear apart other animals, right? Yeah, just... yeah. So the only difference I saw was that before the fall, the lions and tigers would never have attacked humans, Oh, interesting. So they thought that yeah. humans would have lived forever, would have been at peace with everything, and that that change, that now lions occasionally went after humans, was part of the fallenness of creation. So perhaps evolutionary theory, what it does then is it actually connects human beings to animals in a new way that says actually human beings are part of the animal kingdom, and that's that we're not as different from animals as we thought, and that's the problem of death is the same for both, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it undermines the credibility of the idea of an actual historical fall as well. Yeah, if, if you are thinking of a cosmic fall where suddenly everything went wrong, right? That there mm -hmm. was this perfect Edenic paradise where death didn't exist at all and then that all changed. I don't think it makes impossible the idea that there was an entrance of sin into the world which might be a different kind of, say, when we call it a human fall or something like that. So what, what might that look like in the context of the evolutionary story? Yeah, so it's probably going to be working with populations rather than with a couple, for example. Mm -hmm. And it could have happened over generations as, as people became aware of God and moral requirement and that kind of thing. So I kind of say, you know, when a, when a baby is born, they're not sinful, they don't have any particular moral standing, I don't think. I mean, some thinkers in the Christian tradition would disagree with me. But uh, I don't think that they're sinful. By the time they're 15, probably are. <laughs> but even when we can watch every step, if you, if you video recorded every moment of a child's life, like Truman Show style, I still don't think you'd be able to point out the first sin. So I think I think that you have. Well, it depends on what you mean by a sin, right? If sin is just preferring yourself to other people, I'm not sure that's the best definition of sin. But you can see that uh, already in a in a toddler, right? They just want to grab 
stuff and they don't mind watching other people suffer, whereas they do mind experiencing suffering themselves. And so there's a sort of inbuilt self-preference there, isn't there? Yeah, I don't think self-preference is, is necessarily sin. I wouldn't, I wouldn't follow that definition. I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd take a more theological definition of, of it sort of actively opposing God's work to turn you into being who loves, you know. Yeah. So, and I, I take that kind of definition precisely to not say that our evolutionary inheritance is evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. No, it's very interesting. I, that does, I think, conflict with traditional Catholic and Protestant definitions of original sin, which would say a, a child is born sinful and guilty. But it doesn't conflict, as best I understand it, with Eastern Orthodox understandings, right? Where there's more, we're born with a predilection to sin, but not with original guilt. Exactly, yeah. 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 So on, on this picture, sin kind of leaks in rather than being brought in with one specific act. Exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, uh, and so I would, I would actually even kind of say it's brought in, in one sense, by an act of God, of God choosing a population and saying, okay, I'm going to make you into something that's more than natural. I'm going to make you into into sort of supernatural beings in the sense of creatures who can love. So I don't I don't think love is a particularly natural thing. So the the analogy I use is is love is to evolutionary desires what beer is to barley. You know, it's it, it it's made out of those ingredients, but it's something more and different and better. Uh, <laughs> so you would see love as the sort of human distinctive over against animals. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because in your book you say the violence in creation contains the raw ingredients of love. Yeah. Which seems to me to be quite a controversial claim. I just wondered how you get there, if you could tell us a bit more about that. So I, I think that I'm, I'm thinking in terms of people like Daryl Domning and Dennis Lamoureux and other people who have tried to articulate Patricia Williams um, who've tried to articulate kind of how do we still have a view of original sin and how do we do all, all of this in light of evolution. And what several of them have said is something to the effect of we had all these... So somebody like Patricia Williams would say we had good original evolutionary desires, but they get twisted by sin. And so what we have is a corruption of natural desires. And I, I don't like that because I think that those natural desires lead to a lot of harms. Like chimpanzees happily kill their rivals' babies and eat them. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I, I'm not I'm not really okay with saying like, oh, we were just we were pure, you know, back in the day and we yeah. never would have like I think I think that sort of has a noble savage myth that I, I don't like. Mm -hmm. Well that's not actually the traditional Christian view anyway, as best I understand it. No, she's like, she's trying yeah. to sort of say how do we how do we reconcile evolution yeah. with with these stories? So then then you have somebody like Dennis Lamoureux who kind of says, well, we have good desires and bad desires mixed in. And so what we're trying to do is promote the altruistic values and demote this sort of selfish values. And that's, you know, that's what we are particularly called to do. But I just don't think that's good enough. Altruism is completely different from love. They're not the same things, you know. Yeah, well, it seems like you want to describe love as different in kind rather than a matter of degree between yeah. other um, more natural desires. 
But if that's the case, and humans are supernatural beings created with the unique ability to love, then how can the uh, violence of creation contain those raw ingredients that, that then well, you how construct love out love? of? I mean, those two things seem like opposites to the to my intuition anyway. Yeah, and I guess yeah. really what I'm trying to say is it seems either you have love as something that's given by God and is not natural, or you have love that is constructed out of the raw ingredients of creation. But it seems to me that you... Well, maybe you can, maybe you can have both. I think you can, but all of them need a transformation. So it's not, it's not like love is just altruism plus. Mm -hmm. Love is a complete transformation of both the sort of altruistic and the violent and self, you know, sort of self-seeking thing. So again, if I was going, going back to my beer analogy, you know, good beer takes both the like lovely barley, but also the really bitter hops, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think I think you take all of these evolutionary desires and the whole of them need to be transformed into something that they're not, that 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 stretches them beyond their natural values. OK, that's helpful. C can I push you then on a couple of questions um, that I don't think we've quite yet answered? Um, the first is it still seems to me that there's an incompatibility between the violence and the waste and the death that there is in what seems to be a pre-fallen creation at any rate or the way the way things are and the goodness of God. OK, so I I. I don't think that violence and death, apart from sort of the influence of sin in the human realm, is an evil. I think we could call them harms. I think we might call them disvalues. But I don't think there's anything going wrong when a lion goes after an antelope. So it's not evil. A, a, a lion eating an antelope is not in itself evil. Yeah. Uh, it might be. It might obviously involve suffering and obviously it involves death. But you would want to make a distinction, if not a complete separation, between uh, evil and things like suffering and death. So it's possible to have suffering and death without there being evil. Yeah. yeah. So why doesn't God care about the suffering of animals? Why is it not an evil? I think that God cares about it deeply okay. and will work to redeem it. I think that it's not an evil in the sense of there's no sort of there's no moral mm -hmm. perversion is the word that's coming to mind in that, but that's not quite the right word. There's no, there's mo no moral degradation. There's no moral element to that happening, but does God care about it? Absolutely. And that's why I think that anybody who talks about animal suffering needs to have a very robust view of heaven where there's, there's the chance for both, redemption but also beyond redemption so i don't i don't think of heaven as sort of a compensation for the you know for what was suffered here rather it's the proper completion of creaturely life well can Could i can i push you on that a little bit because i think admitting that god cares about suffering would lead the ordinary christian to say well if god cares about it why did he create a world in which it had to happen that was going to be my question yeah. okay <laughs> for, yeah, let's go for that. yeah so i think that when you look biologically at pain and suffering, you actually realize that, well, one, only a very few creatures actually have those capacities. So the vast majority of life on Earth is plant, bacteria, protozoans, archaea. None of them suffer at all. So as far the, as we know. Yeah. So of the like 540 gigatons of life on Earth, only two of those gigatons 
um, our, our animal. And then <laughs> Measuring of it that, by weight, yeah. Yeah, by, by carbon weight, by carbon weight. <laughs> so so of, of that, you know, of that, of that two gigatons of carbon weight of, of animals, you know, only a small percentage of that has the possibility of, of suffering in what we would think of as a morally meaningful way. So at one point, I think I tried to do the calculations and came out to 0.03% of life suffers in a way that we can absolutely say they suffer, and maybe up to 0.13%, depending on what you think about fish. Um, so, you know, <laughs> so I think, I think, you know, we often have this idea like, Suffering is just absolutely ubiquitous. Actually, suffering is rare. And the reason it was developed is because it helps those creatures live good and flourishing lives. If I took away your ability to feel pain, you wouldn't benefit from that. You'd actually have a much worse life. Uh, so there are people who are born without the ability to feel pain, and they tend to live very short lives because they damage themselves. They run their head into a wall and think, oh, that, that kind of felt neat, <laughs> you know, and they'll do it again. Well, that's also why the disease of leprosy is so harmful because yep. people lose the ability to feel pain and thus damage themselves without being aware of it. Yeah. So all Hansen's disease does is it's a bacterial infection of the pain nerves and it kills those. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with their body but they slowly accidentally destroy themselves because they don't have pain. So when we say, like, did, why did God create suffering? In one sense, creatures created suffering through the evolutionary process because it was such an advantage. But couldn't an omnipotent God have just chosen a better system? I don't know the answer to that. Mm. The, the question is, is there, is there a, another system that works Within our realm of knowledge, we don't know of one. So Paul Brand, who wrote the book uh, The Gift of Pain, was one of the early researchers in, in leprosy, yes. tried to create separate systems for people so that they could see. So he had gloves with sensors on, and like a light would light up whenever people were doing something that was putting too much pressure on their hands. And inevitably what happened was they're like, yeah, but I want to do this task. So they just ignored it and did it anyways and then damaged themselves. But he's just one man, not an omnipotent God. No, but the, the point is, like, if, if I mean, the, the only reasonable way to get around that would be to have a body that cannot be damaged. But a body that cannot be damaged also can't feel, also can't. Well, I think it also it also <laughs> leads to the deeper question of what we mean by an omnipotent God, right? So when we say God is all-powerful, do we mean that he could have made it that 2 plus 2 equals something other than 4? Or do we do... That's one example, right? And sure. most Christians would say God's omnipotence doesn't uh, violate the limits of reason. Well, sure. I mean, an, an omnipotent God can't do anything that's logically impossible. But I want to argue that it isn't logically impossible to think of, for an omnipotent God, an omniscient God, to come up with another system that kind of gets around the extent to which pain and suffering seems to be baked into the very creative process. Yeah, so, well, I mean, you could look at plants, for example, as another example of a way that creatures live in the world without suffering, mm -hmm. at least so far as we know. Yeah. You know, so yeah, obviously it's possible, but obviously plants don't have some of the skills and things that we do. But again, you're kind of saying like, God baked this in, 
but the evolutionary process say creatures themselves developed these systems. They weren't designed by God so much as they were they were developed through the evolutionary system because they were an advantage. Well, but people who want to believe in divine creation alongside evolution would normally say or, or, or would propose a view that says evolution happened but God guided the way it happened. Some people say that. I'm not sure I, I follow that. I mean, I don't think God guided us to have appendices that burst. I don't think God guided our evolution to be uh, to have such bad lower back problems, right? So I think I think that those those issues are are because of historical happenstance. So, in other words, you're saying that there was a certain freedom of uh, animal life to evolve itself Absolutely. in its own way that God gave it. Even that's a sort of freedom that life had before even human beings entered the scene, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, human beings weren't sort of made afresh. They were built out of all the decisions that our mammalian predecessors made as well. So if if that's the case, then what should the ordinary Christian do with the Genesis narratives? How are they to interpret them? Yeah, or, or can I sharpen that question a little bit by saying most people who read Genesis 3 uh, would not arrive at a view of sin and evil and death that is the one you're proposing. Yeah, although I think that those narratives are very poorly read. For example, everybody stops after chapter three and they don't bother reading on to the flood and the lifting of the curse. Yeah. So actually all, all the curse that is placed in Genesis 3, the curse on the ground and the curse of toil for the, for, for the man, is, is raised in the Noahic event where, where Noah is called relief because his father prays and asks that, that, that the toil put on, on the land and on people would be relieved through Noah. And at the end of the Noahic account, God says, I will never again curse the ground. So there's something more complex going on there that we often miss. Yes, yeah. So I don't think that's when birth pains started, for example. So, you know, birth birth pains, Hebrew has very good words for birth pains, and they're not used in that passage. The word for pain there is is sort of a generalized pain. Um, well, it, I've also, like I've also sorrow. had it pointed out to me that the curse on Eve in Genesis 3 says... I will increase your sufferings in childbirth, whatever the Hebrew It doesn't word. even say in childbirth. It says, I will increase your conception and your sorrow. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So what, what, what ends up happening is that people have interpreted that as a hendiadis. So in the same way that you would say um, full of sound and fury, meaning yeah. full of furious sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People, people have taken that, I will increase your conception and your sorrow to mean increase your labor pains. I don't think we should read it that way. I think it, it literally means you will multiply, your conceptions will increase, but child mortality and all these other things will also come into the picture in a new way, and then your sorrow will increase. Oh, and the word sorrow, the Hebrew word for sorrow there you're saying is not the normal word associated with the pain of childbirth. No, it's not. It's not. It doesn't mean labor pains at all. In it, the only way you could get labor pains from that is if you take those two terms and and smash them together. You know, read them as 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 a okay. hendiadis phrase. If you if you read them separately, the word sorrow 
is is used various places, but never of childbirth, except in the possibility of of the prayer of Jabez, where where Jabez sort of says, you know, my mother conceived me in sorrow, but uh, I'm praying that God doesn't make me have sorrow as well. So obviously, it doesn't mean in his in his uh, prayer, he's not praying to avoid labor pains. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. <laughs> but that's the only other place that that verb is ever used, you know, in any conjunction with childbirth. And also, your book is subtitled um, Theodicy Without a Fool, right? Yeah. And that also is a bit of a, a startling statement for many Christians. But I think one of the things that you point out there is that the term fool and the idea of a fool is not there in a plain reading of Genesis 3. That's our own interpretation of it, right? Yeah. yeah. So fall, the language of fall involves the idea of an original perfection. Yes. Whereas through a sort of more Irenaean account, what you have is a growth in sort of a, a growth from innocence into experience, if I can put it that way. And that, that that experience is fallen or is muddled by sin. Yes. But I don't think it's more like a, a toddler fumb- falling as they're trying to get up yeah. rather than somebody falling from a high pedestal. So the other reason I use that without a fall is because several people uh, would defend that it's the fallenness of the angels that corrupted the evolutionary process. So I didn't want to have that kind of implication either, that the whole oh, without of creation... The, without the devil in being involved yeah. or the serpent. Yeah. How, do, how do you understand the role of the serpent then? So, I mean, the serpent, it, it actually just says right there in the text, this is another of the creatures the Lord God has made. And it's, it's described as shrewd, which is actually... Uh, the same Hebrew word as wise, isn't it? Yes, yeah. so it's used in, in Proverbs as something that's good, that we should yeah. be shrewd. So, yeah. it, you know, the, I think, I think our, our usual understanding of the serpent is more influenced by Milton than it is by the Bible. Paradise Lost, yeah. Yeah. But what, what you're proposing, you talked about an Irenaean account earlier, but I just want to unpack what that means for those who don't know what an Irenaean account is. Um, Irenaeus being a second or third century theologian. Third century, third, uh, Bishop who, of Lyon. Yeah, who, who's very well received in the Christian tradition, but his, his idea of what things were like for Adam and Eve or, or like for original creation is very far from the idea that it's perfect, right? And people often miss the fact that Genesis 1 nowhere says that creation was perfect. It just says it was good. Mm-hmm. And so if we can distinguish between um, evil and sin, which is not necessarily imperfection, we can have the idea that creation needed to grow and develop and that Adam and Eve were like children to begin with and then they needed to grow and mature and that process of maturity has nothing to do with sin or doesn't necessarily have anything to do with sin. Uh, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, and that they're, they're reaching out for the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not something that God meant for them to be barred from forever. Rather, God was saying they were too immature for it. So it's sort of like if you, if a seven-year-old gets in the car and turns it on and starts driving away, there's a 
big problem. But when they're 16 and they have their driver's license, then it's a great thing. It's something you celebrate. So the command so, was, was temporary and provisional. So their yeah. infraction was that they tried to be like God in the wrong way too soon and not by the proper methods of growing up in maturity and then receiving from God. They tried to take it in the wrong timing, essentially. So there's definitely a sin there, but it's different from... Uh, a full from perfection. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so would you say, this, this leads us into quite controversial territory, would you say that there was human death before sin? I would, yeah. Because again, I think that the thing that makes death problematic in human experience is sin. Whereas in, you know, if we could imagine being sinless, I think we would just take it as the the proper end to a good life and the way that we step into eternity. Uh, and you see that sometimes in the lives of sort of the saints and the martyrs, right? Where there's, or even in literary characters like mm. Father Zosma and Dostoevsky, there's no sense that death is some horrific thing that should be avoided at all costs. It's simply the way we move to the next step of, of life. So we were always meant to live and die on this earth and then go to heaven. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, that's a very, very interesting perspective, but it's not one that most Christians will have heard of. And I think the typical objection that you will get back to that is that the Apostle Paul in Romans connects sin with death quite closely, and he says, death came as a result of sin. So yeah. how would you understand? All, yeah. So in both the passages where he does that, Romans 5 to 8 and 1 Corinthians 15, he also says things like, I die every day, brothers, I mean that. Or, you know, for I myself no longer live, I am crucified with Christ, you know. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, so, so he's using death in various different ways. Now, of course, I'm going to say Paul did not know about evolution. He did not know the kinds of things that affect our interpretation today. So he, if you sat down and asked him, were humans immortal before the garden event, he probably would have said yes, which was, you know, is, is reflected in things like Maccabees and the Apocalypse of Moses, where you have these stories being told in, in first century mm. terms. Um, so I would say, well, we have a different scientific reason to kind of say, you know, there's probably no way that physically lasting forever in this world is particularly a good thing. At the same time, I think that there's room in the way that he talks about death to interpret it as spiritual death because he himself interprets it as spiritual death yeah, so at I various points. What you seem to be saying is that Paul mentions, uses the word death a lot and many times we just automatically assume that he's using it in a metaphorical sense, not about physical, literal death. Uh, and you're challenging whether we should actually question the distinction we make that actually maybe he's using it in a metaphor using death in a metaphorical sense more often than we sometimes think yeah yeah when i asked the question about what is the christian to do about genesis one of the other questions that comes up is this idea of god creating beings in their final form um and that seems to contradict some of the things you've been saying earlier about not only, I mean, you seem to want to say that God doesn't even create through the evolutionary process. Creatures create themselves. So what there is the right interpretation of those passages in Genesis? So in terms of a Hebrew view of trying to say in a finalized perfect state, 
probably the closest word, if they even had a concept of that, would be something like shalom, that that things are in a state of shalom, which, which is, is normally that. translated peace, isn't it? But that's quite a flat translation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think it is significant that nowhere in those passages, not even in if its description of the Garden of Eden, is shalom used or shalom implied. Um, the best is tov meod, that, that the world is created very good. But as a number of scholars, John Walton and others have pointed out, this, this means a very functional good, not sort of perfect and finalized. And, and the very fact that humans are given a mandate to fill the earth, subdue it, you know, work and guard the garden, all, all I think, have implications of saying this wasn't the final static place at things, or there was a journey to creation that was always meant to be. You had a second part to that question. Um, oh, yes. God creating... Ah, here we go. So when you when I'm saying so, I think that God God's creation happens in and through the freedom of creatures. What I'm trying to get away from is the idea that God designed every part of the natural world to be exactly what it is. So I mean, in the same way that Psalm 139 talks about, you know, you knit me together in my mother's womb, da 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 da. None of us would think that God is busy sort of attaching an arm and a leg and da-da-da-da-da in, in creating a human. But when a baby is born, we'd say, well, that is the creation of God. So I think um, the way that some theologians talk about it is that God empowers creation to create itself, not God designs the outcomes and then guides it along the exact paths, et cetera, et cetera. God gives the power to creatures to create themselves, and they sometimes do that really well, and they sometimes do it in ways that harm themselves and others. Mm. Well, isn't it quite a risk for God to give the creative power, to give creative power to creation and just hope that humans come along at some point? So it is a huge risk, but I think it's a risk that's intrinsic to the nature of love. So I think God, as, as the ultimately loving one, has to take that risk. And, you know, that's something that open theists and process theists uh, say quite a bit about. And I don't think that in saying God wasn't at a risk to see if humans would come about, I'm not sure that, that humans were necessarily what God had in mind per se. I think a creature who could bear God's image would have come along one way or another, even if not on this planet, on some other one. But they wouldn't it's have had really to physically look like a human, is that yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So if, 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 a, if a, an asteroid hadn't hit the Yucatan Peninsula 65 million years ago, killing the dinosaurs, you know, we may, may have been here as, as velociraptors and sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, their, their descendants. So, you know, highly intelligent reptiles. I don't, so I don't, I don't think, so I think that there was uh, always a lot of give and, and God responded to creation in much the same way that a parent responds to a child growing up, right? So you can have purposes for your child, but you can't sort of be like, well, you have to, you know, do this and be this. That, that genuinely doesn't work very well for it's anybody. It's purpose within the boundaries, or, or it's freedom within the boundaries of a certain purpose, yeah. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about uh, scriptural interpretation and about the problem at hand, but I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit more about the solution that you propose to these problems. Yeah, and I, I think, again, rather than seeing it as a solution, I'd sort of see it as a theological picture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but 
I think that that it really comes down to what we were talking about at the end there that the the love of God creates a freedom driven world that results in the kinds of suffering that we see amongst as we said some small population of of the community of life and that I think God co-suffers God shares with with that suffering so there's no suffering that God doesn't undergo as well and so I think God cares more deeply about animal suffering than any of the rest of us because God alone knows the suffering they actually go through. But then I think that God also works to redeem it. And you could think of redemption happening in different ways. So there's one sort of redemption that happens when that animal suffering or death contributes to other creatures' life. So people often talk about waste in nature, but there's actually no waste in nature. Absolutely every kilojoule of life gets reused by others. And so, you know, if we see if we see the little chick that gets eaten by the fox, that's a tragedy in one way, and yet that that is contributing to the life of the fox. And then we could kind of zoom out from that and say there's also redemption in the way that the whole story of life contributes to the larger story of God and the world and and the sort of development of salvation history and Christ's coming and the incarnation all those things are made possible by all of all of the creatures who've suffered and died and lived and flourished etc and then you can also go to a sort of otherworldly redemption of you know individual creatures finding new life in the eschaton which I think, again, just like with humans, was always meant to be the case. So there's uh, animal life after death as well as human life after death. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Because yeah. I, think, I think the question, you know, when we ask what kind of creatures will be redeemed, the only question that that's an answer to is what creatures does God love? So it's not even a question of what creatures suffer sufficiently or which had a bad enough life that they really deserve. I don't think that's asking the right question. The only question that matters is what does God love? And I think that anything that God loves will be redeemed. And God loves, well, everything. Yeah. So everything will be redeemed. Bio-universalism. Sounds amazing. It's a very hopeful place to end. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Bethany. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.